Today, it's a special on the Sauron of Syria, the dark master from the land of Pasta, the most dodgy, Luciano Moji. Also, top four race, four teams within one point, and all that kind of thing on Golazzo. Da domani sarò dimissionario eh, da direttore generale della Juventus e da stasera il mondo del calcio non è più il mio mondo. Sound there of Luciano Moggi, perhaps the most significant figure of the last 30 years in the Italian game. And it's hello to Gabriele Marcotti and to James Horncastle. Hello. I hope last week's subject, Arrigo Sacchi, doesn't hear you say that. Well, uh, go, <laughs> l- let's make a case then that Moggi might be slightly more influential in terms of the good and the bad of the, way, of, the, of the landscape of Italian football through the 90s up to this day. Yeah, I mean, how to win games and influence people. I suppose. <laughs> I think you said it up right in the intro, James. He is like a, a Sith from the dark side, really. Because, I mean, it, people think of, of, of Moji just at Juventus, his spell there from 94 to 2006. But really, this goes back even even further than that to Torino, to Roma, to, to Napoli during the Maradona years yeah. uh, in particular. Um, Prosthetic penis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just... Um, yeah, I think one of the things that always stood out for me when the Calciopoli scandal broke was that this guy's network um, didn't only uh, limit itself to, to football. Right. Um, it went up to the very highest office sort of institutions in all the kind of Italian life, you know, mm-hmm. politics, uh, law enforcement, um, just uh, one hell of a context book this guy had. Yeah, the cupola, as they called it. He was also, though, Gab... An extraordinarily fine football scout brought Juve some of their finest players, brought some great players to to Napoli. He had an incredible sense for football. Yeah, it took a lot of scouting to bring Maradona to Napoli. <laughs> um, I, it's really hard for me. This to, is a guy you're going to be really up on, isn't no, it? No, 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 no. Look, I, it's really hard for me to, to 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 come out and praise you know this scout versus that scout because there's one thing that I've learned over the years is that people love taking credit for other things and people love sort of blaming others for bad decisions. There's no question that given his background um, and where he started out, he did... the Vecchia train station. Exactly. (laughs) You know, he was working, was he the station master? I don't think he was actually the station master, but he was working, he left school without qualifications and he he got a job with the railways. Yeah, and as always with people in football who, who never made it, there's this story about attempting to make it but just just you know it not happening for him and there's no question he put in the time and and he got his first breaks not because he was a bad guy but because he was very good at scouting lower division players and so on Mm. people who then after that talk about oh look you know he scouted uh, you know this guy and that guy and whatever else like you know who knows did did we really believe that while he was running Juve and buying and selling players he had the time to use this magical power to go and look at somebody once and be like oh yes we'll take him and we won't take that Mm. I mean I honestly don't know but he was obviously very good at at the other aspects of his job too right well what should Luciano Moji take credit for and what especially should he take the blame for the stories are pretty incredible let's begin our look back on this complex figure with the presently titled Curity nel cesso, lock yourself in the bathroom by Otto Otto Tre. Curity nel cesso, li vedrai, nessuno ti toccherà, però fallo adesso. 
born in the 1930s in Tuscany, rising up through the railways, begins to work in the 1970s as a scout for Juve, for Italo Alordi, who we were mentioning last week, who was the kind of pre-Moji Moji. And as a kind of junior scout for the club, he catches Alordi's eye. Uh, he's certainly involved in the signings of some pretty incredible players. Scherer, uh, Paolo Rossi, Gentile, Causio. Essentially, what, the, the 1982 World Cup winning team. I mean, that, that I suppose, you know, he wasn't always a sporting director, general manager, um, chief executive, whatever you want to call it. As Gab was as detailing earlier, caught the attention of Alodi just for the, for the fact that this guy would travel up and down, not necessarily always by train, go to Viareggio tournaments and claimed, you know, he was instrumental in, in bringing certain players, usually from sort of middle of Italy, south of Italy, to Juventus' attention. But it was very much kind of seen as this disciple of Alodi, mm. um, you know, who had a a chequered history um, himself. Um, well, he, he was the man behind the, the great inter of uh, Angelo Moratti, which you know, has one or two stories associated with it, but also some some true, true greatness. And that was very much what he was about at Juve. But there's a point at which Boniperti basically won't let Moji back in the building. I'm not sure what quite what happened there. So this is a theme that would repeat itself. So for those who don't know, Giampiero Boniperti was a longtime Juventus president. Before that, he was a he was a Juventus legend. He was the blonde, blue-eyed kid who who played with Omar Sivori and the great John Charles. He scored an absurd amount of goals over an absurdly long career for Juventus. And he was always very sort of patrician, very like he kind of, you know, he wasn't, I suppose, genetically an Agnelli, but you know, he He's might a very as well have been stingy negotiator, wasn't he? Yeah, and as the story goes, by those who within the Juve sphere who like Boniperti and dislike Moji, you know, he came to realize that he didn't want this guy around the club. And what's interesting is that years later, mm. you know, when Juventus who find themselves in the early '90s, they've spent absurd amounts of money on Roberto Baggio, on Vialli, and but yet Milan keep winning. You know. They've gone nine years without a league title. Mm. Um, a lifetime for, for Juve. They end up hiring Moji. And so Gianni Agnelli, the avvocato, by the way, if you want some insight in this, there's, there's a tremendous HBO documentary. It was also on Sky Atlantic, uh, which kind of explains this man's incredible life. He ends up bringing him to the club. And he says, well, everybody knows that if you have a bunch of, you know, if you, if you own stables, you want your stable master to know all the horse thieves in the area and be friendly with them. And there was almost a justification to saying like, hey, football's a dirty game, we'll keep them there. Equally though, and I've looked, I've spent time looking, I haven't found it, so it may be an urban myth. Agnelli died, I wanna say 2004, like- 2004 was it? Yeah, I wanna say, like Agnelli who, you know, was the owner of the club and the spiritual voice of the club and the de facto boss of the club. Juve. It was kind of almost the kind of de facto king of Italy. Huh? Yeah, that too. So 10 years he and Moji spend together at Juve. 10 years in which he signs Moji's paychecks. Find me photographs of Moji and Gianni Agnelli together. Huh. Interesting. As the legend goes, there's no such pictures exist because right. he went out of his way to avoid them. Right. The king of the um, stable master. Yeah. They don't uh, I mean, we'll maybe get to this, but um, just to go back to Boniperti, uh -huh. it's only when, you know, Boniperti is essentially his long running 
Speller as president of the club, where he was acting as Gianni Agnelli's guy who looked after Juventus. Yeah, it's only when he is he's told you're not president anymore and essentially just becomes an ambassador, no longer runs the club, that Moji and the rest of the triad, Bettiga and the Giraudo come in. And it's only when Agnelli dies in 2004 that Moji believes that all of this started to unravel because right. because of we'll, Galliani. Well, no, well, I mean, we'll get to this, but there's Moji certainly thinks that he was out modjied by someone, right? Um, and that there was certain a certain Doctor Evil in a, Milan. A, a, in one a, a, a power struggle within the Agnelli Elkan family is right. This kind of all came okay. out. Okay. Well, in the wilderness years, when he'd been slung out of the UVHQ, he took a variety of jobs, including at Roma, uh, where. He basically was removed by Dino Viola now, after a scandal where he was caught dining with the referees ahead of a game, which Roma then won against Ascoli. He goes to Lazio. He he goes to, to Napoli after Maradona had actually arrived, but he does he is there for Correca's arrival. And also, he's in charge when they bring in Gianfranco Zola for about £90,000, which is pretty amazing yeah, stuff. And, and, and from... Torres, which is what, a fourth division Sardinian side now. But the great Monty story in Naples is the one about Maradona and the dope controls. Well, yeah, and what, the uh, the prosthetic penis. Mm. Yeah, Corrado Faleno it is who actually makes that allegation that it was... Uh that it was Moji who supplied the prosthetic penis and, and the tubes of, of urine with which Diego would circumvent the doping test. In 91, then, he joins Juve's neighbours Torino, where again, Borsano, in the middle of his court cases... <laughs> because he had many, alleged that it was Moji who provided female escorts for referees for that incredible UEFA Cup run that we celebrated in a recent... <laughs> Mondonico. ...about how well Mondonico and Torino did. And here's another side to that story. Yeah, I, and, I mean, as the story goes, there was never kind of an official thing like, oh, look, Moji's sending me so that, you know... But it was more like they would go and they would accost the referees who would think, like, well, I'm really lucky tonight, you know? And the thing about Moji is Moji never denied this i think and even if it wasn't true it all kind of fueled his sense of impunity and his sense of power that he could go to any length and and, and, and this do what he liked that's the thing yeah and you know i remember i, I speaking to former juve player who who made the point that you know juve also won a lot because they were really good in the juve era but there were situations where the fact that people had this perception about them with the referees as well. It was just so demoralizing for opposing teams that it gave them another psychological edge well, that there, didn't exist there before. Do you remember that court case uh, in which a, uh, a supporter brought a private action against Juventus for essentially falsifying the championship? This is around the, the turn of the millennium. And the judge ruled that there was no evidence that Juve had been doing anything illicit, but that there clearly was evidence of what he called... Uh, Psychological suditanza, a psychological yeah. servitude that everyone was so scared of the mighty Juve that they would unconsciously kowtow to yeah, whatever and, would be. I want to say them. this concept, by the way, children out there, boys and girls, remember this concept, right? Psychological subjection, if you want to call it that. It's the basic concept. And if you speak to referees from, from Mike Riley to Pierluigi Colina, they will tell you that it is very real and it does affect people. It's the basic notion that if Manchester United play Burnley and the referee is sure about his decision, then there's no issue. He'll call a penalty against United every day of the week. If Manchester United play Burnley and he's not sure because he's human, because he didn't see it properly, he still has to make a decision. In the back of his mind, he knows that if I get this wrong and it hurts Burnley, 
Then I'll have Sean Dyche growling for an hour afterwards, people giggling on Match of the Day, and we'll move on. If I make a mistake that hurts Manchester United, maybe not so much now because mm. it's a smiley, happy Norwegian, but, you know, in the Sir Alex era, then it's going to be a big thing in the media for a whole week. Right. And while there might not be anybody ringing up my boss at the Referees Association or whatever, it's going to hurt my image far more than if I make a mistake against Burnley and that may yet then affect my career. And this is what Moji built the entire, I mean, the entire case rests on this, the right. fact that he could influence people's careers. Burnley, who, by the way, went almost 70 games without getting a penalty. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> Premier League. All right. Well, so Moji's had an, an interesting schooling in scouting and in terms of building a network. In 1994, while the rest of Europe are busy returning to innocence, Juve take the opposite approach. Jenny Agnelli bringing in the horse thief to catch a horse thief, if you will. Luciano Moggi. The master who knows all the horses. The stable master who knows all the horses. As you mentioned, they hadn't won the title in an eternity. Juve were in danger of becoming almost an irrelevancy in the title race. The change, though, under Moggi was immediate. They won the title that first season. They won five of the next eight titles. Uh, They won the Champions League in 96 as well. They reached three finals in a row. They brought in Zidane, they brought in Nedved, later Ibrahimovic, Cannavaro came in, Buffon and Taram. Incredible players, and Moji also brought in something called La Cupola. How did, Gab, La Cupola work? So this is in keeping with the very Italian cynical belief that there's always something behind something else because dietrologia dietrologia yeah behindology right because you know that you know the deep state exists is very real because sadly over the years as we've discovered is that it's actually often true true. (laughs) um the accusation against them was moji had a hand in appointing certain referees to certain games. There were certain referees that he didn't want and others that he did. And and what would, what happened back then, because in Italy we were obsessed with referees, what happened is the two, we really had this absurd situation where, whereas in England you have, you know, one Mike Riley, who chooses, second Mike Riley reference this, this podcast, he'll thank me. You have, you know, they, I don't know, he consults other people, but basically he's like, okay, we'll have this guy for this game and that guy. And obviously you want your better referees for the bigger games or the games you deem to be more difficult, derbies and whatever. The way they did it in Italy was, well, you can't have one guy doing it because he might be Juve's guy. So because they can't argue, they decided they had two people doing it who, who could veto each other's choices. On top of that, you couldn't just have a draw or you couldn't have them sitting there and deciding it. So they decided sort of a, a, a hybrid between drawing lots to see who would referee games and also some sort of steered situation. So the City A matches were split into three categories, you know, easy, moderate, difficult, and they would choose the referees who would fit into each category, and then they would have a draw. Although weirdly, that in and itself, the draw ended up being, as we later discovered, there are serious doubts about whether there was an actual draw. Yeah, because one of the guys involved in it basically came forward and said, um, look, some of the papers that would go into the tombola uh, were discolored or old. So you kind of knew right. uh, which one. And th- this was when the Carabinieri, who were essentially investigating the case, the offside case, they went to watch one of these draws and they watched it and filmed it and they couldn't see anything that was obviously wrong with it. 
Um, it was only when basically someone turned state witness and, and said, yeah, but, you know, if you're actually stood over these tombolas and mm. looking at these things, you can so, get a sense of what, but, what's what. But just to be clear on this, and in Moji's, okay, dare I say it, defense, people have the wrong impression. He wasn't bribing referees to help him. He wasn't even necessarily intimidating them into helping him. What he was effectively doing is he was making sure that certain referees who were particularly strong or that he believed had a grudge against him or who, you know, weren't likely to be swayed by this psychological subjection, basically very rarely refereed Juve games. And not only that, and this was, I think, the really nice twist, it was the games before Juve played an opponent. Say they were going to be taking on Siena, then... Siena's previous match, they might get a yellow card or two, which meant that key players would be suspended for the subsequent oh. match against Juve. And, and this this is, uh, just to go off on a slight tangent, um, when Pope John Paul II was um, dying and it looked like he was close to death. Was that um, Moji as well? <laughs> the, uh, the Minister of the Interior um, basically goes public and says, I think we should just call off this weekend's round of games. Mm. And Moji gets on the phone with him and says, well, you know, only in the event of his death should we do that. Um, and and wants the games to go ahead. Why does he want the games to go ahead? Because Juventus' opponent have several injuries, two players suspended, and obviously if they have a delay, mm. those players could get fit again. And maybe if that round was then rescheduled for later in the season, those guys who were suspended would not be suspended. Exactly. So that's the kind of... And this is, this is essentially the home secretary he's speaking to of the country. Well, you mentioned the fact that his network of influence extended way beyond referees. There were journalists, there were agents, there was pretty much everybody. Two referees are in the soundtrack, Pierluigi Colina and, and Braschi, who I think between them, like they refereed Juve like twice in four years, something absurd like that. Why? Because at the same time, they were like number one and number one A on the FIFA list. So they were unassailable and Margie didn't want them. And we saw what happened when Colina did referee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Came in, in yeah. Yeah. There, there are a couple of things to, to add into that. And that is basically the Caltropoli scandal. The investigation starts when there's a game between Venezia and Messina um, in 2004, where um, I think Venezia end up with eight men. And is that is, is it is is that the game with the incredible Soviero, the Soviero, the goalkeeper? Soviero is a god. <laughs> he goes on one of the greatest. Is this on YouTube? I, I retweet it every couple months. He, it's it's incredible. Imagine like a goalkeeper who's just just goes postal. Like he's had enough. He's like he's like Michael Douglas and falling down. Right. He sees his teammates keep getting sent off, and he goes and he just decides he's going to fight everybody. He just sprints across the pitch and just starts beating up the entire Messina team. Um, it's incredible. But part of the issue was that Messina team, whose owner was a guy named Pietro Franza, who who owns a owned a string of hotels. Yeah. They were seen, the hotel where the, tr the the transfer market takes place in, in Milan. Um, <laughs> did he? Yeah, yeah, at hotels, right. that's him. So that side was seen as, rightly or wrongly, a side that was in Margie's orbit. Siena as well. But mm. One season, Siena seemed to like be wearing Juve's shirts from the year before, remember? They were, they were like identical. And his son... Alessandro Moggi, who became an agent, because of course conflicts of interest are something we don't really do in Italy, and this guy ended up having something like 200 uh, players on his books, and it was called Gea, was the name of his company. 
also managers. Marcello Lippi is a well, Jay Clark. Yeah. And the notion was that if you wanted it, to get into the Italian national side, you needed to be on it, side with these people. It, Everything. It, certainly, it certainly helped. So you have a combination of Juventus who, like other big clubs, already has like, a big youth system and they already have, you know, hundreds of players under contract. Uh, or not hundreds, but, you know, a good 70, 80 pros under contract, including kids and stuff who need to be loaned out. Then you got the son who's got hundreds of clients. And, you know, you wonder why he gets hundreds of clients. And between them, they could go and they could strengthen certain teams, smaller teams, and exert influence over them. And it wasn't like they exerted influence over them so that they would lie down when they played them. But it was a lot of a lot of transfer machinations. It was, I mean, one case that was was leveled against against Messina was they were playing one of Juve's rivals one season, and basically for like two weeks before. They rested and played a bunch of numpties so that their injured guys could be at 100% against Roma and give them a good kicking. You saw these things happen. And could Moggi have been innocent of all this? Could it have been a giant plot against him? Maybe. But it was a whole bunch of coincidences that certainly fueled this belief. James, right. Just to bring this all back is that um, so the chief executive of Venezia basically makes these allegations after the game that uh, the referee, I think it was Massimo Di Santis, and a series of other Roman referees who he alleged would look, I think, close to Jaya. That yeah, this was all this was all kind of their doing. Right. And Venezia then the it was not Zamparini back then; it was a normal person. And then the investigation starts, and it's only within a few weeks of wiretapping all all the various people around football that you then have the famous Regina Juventus game where Juventus have two goals disallowed. They have a penalty claim turned down, which was blatant handball. And Moji and Giraldo go in and see the, the match officials after the game. Caparesta. So, yeah, so this is Regina, the 6th of November 2004. Moji goes in and there are witnesses of the, the rant that he basically unleashes against Paparesta. And then he himself, for these wiretaps, which by now are pretty um, thick on the ground around him and various other people, have him telling somebody, yeah, I, I drove away, I shut up the, the referee in the dressing room and I took the keys away and I'm at the airport now. <laughs> I'd like to see them open it now. They'll have to knock the door down. <laughs> Bisogna proporre il ritiro della patente direttamente a Paparetta. I want to be fair about this uh, because I got to spend time with, with Moji in writing my Capello book after, you know, after he'd been found guilty and turfed out of football. And he put out for the, the theory, which is put out by other people and which you'll find on new forums, that, you know what, all these wiretaps... Italy's uh, leading mobile phone operator at the oh, time, Tim. Tim. Who's on the board at Inter? <laughs> yeah. Um, and which is the one major club that doesn't get caught up whose recordings of people contacting the people who decided the referees right. didn't come to light until after the Calciopoli scandal is Inter. It should be pointed out that Moji had dozens of phones, many of them registered to foreign SIM cards. It's not like team decided to start tapping them themselves or mm. listening into his calls and then putting them on the internet, WikiLeaks style. It was the police that did it because in Italy, where civil rights aren't always great, the police have the power to almost tap anybody whenever they want to, and judges always give out, give out wiretap orders. And we have more wiretaps in Italy than the rest of the EU combined. Yeah, you know the and, first four or five episodes of The Wire where they're trying to get a wiretap. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work that way in Italy. <laughs> the yeah, Wire it really takes one phone call. So. And, and Moji's point was that, yeah, so they, they you know, they, they, they wiretap everybody, which is why I had to get the foreign sims, because right. I knew I was being wiretapped. So this idea that it was telecom, and by the way, there are other mobile phone operators in Italy as well, you know, is kind of a nonsense. I mean, you can, you can complain that 
they were excessive wiretaps and they took things out of context and right. small ju- but to tie all that back to to telecom to make it a big interplot which by the way inter eventually in 2011 it turned out that you know they were also trying to yeah. influence things badly but you know well, that's the thing the notion of inter successfully pulling off any kind of plot <laughs> just betrays <laughs> total ignorance of of their level of competence <laughs> however it is true as you say that the the recordings came out after uh, the Calciopoli scandal for them, whereas Milan, Fiorentina, Lazio, and of course, most of all, Juventus were caught up in this. As I recall, there were two different police investigations that basically nailed Moji. One was um, a match-fixing investigation going on down in Naples, which had uh, made them arrange a whole bunch of phone taps. And the other one was Stefano Palazzi, who'd been the guy who tried to do Juve on that doping scandal yeah. with uh, Agricola, no, the doctor. Berniello, no? Oh, Palazzi. was it Guarinello oh, who did yeah. that? But I think Palazzi's interest had been piqued by that. And the fact that Juve got away because of the statute of limitations with that, he had kept a special eye out for them. And it was him who, who really took this on in the in the uh, Turin police department. And uh, it was pretty hard to deny anything. And I think it's significant that Juve, when the story broke in May 2006, they didn't deny it. They actually plea bargained. They they almost immediately fired Moji Giraldo and Bettiger within the space of I think a week, and said we will accept a demotion to Serie B with a point penalty. I, I think the under, the belief is that they thought they were going to be knocked down to the fourth division or something. Otherwise, that was well the that was certainly the risk. I think third division was the risk, and this is where you get sort of the two Juve schools of thought, right? Mm-hmm. Because Gianni Agnelli goes, the next generation of Agnelli's died tragically, um, one through suicide and one in a car accident. So you have basically Gianni Agnelli's grandkids and there's two branches to the family. There's the Alcan branch, which is a guy named John and his brother Lapo, <laughs> who is a colorful character to say the least. And they basically took control. John Elkan is, is now in charge of, um, among other things, Fiat. So like he's on bigger, better things. Lapo is still a colorful character, but they basically said, we need to take this under the chin. We need to save the uh, the brand. You know, I like to think that they also said, that's what granddad would have wanted. Um, Andrea Agnelli, who at the time didn't wield much power, he was much closer to the so-called triad, the Maggi. He grew up with them. He basically did. As a fan, he's hanging out with them. Lapo Elkan came out when, when they got rid of the, all three of them. Girado, by the way, was later, he later had legal issues as well uh, for false accounting and whatnot. He said, you know what? The problem is we need to become likable again. Nobody likes us. Um, and he said, just imagine, out of Bettega, Girado, and Moji, the most likable guy of the three by far is Moji. And I think that says it all. And it's probably true because I'm not saying Girado and Bettega were as bad as Moji, but Girado is just a grumpy, nasty guy. And Bettega is a one of the worst people I have ever met. Really? Like, seriously, I, I, I would rather, you know, Moji move in with me for the rest of his days um, than, than be around that man. Elkan went so far as to ring up a man named Franco Baldini, who at the time was... The anti-Moji. The anti-Moji, right? The director for the, the man who had been jilted by the Benedict Arnold, Judas Iscariot, Fabio Capello, who after railing against Juve and their power, he's in charge at Roma, decides from one day to the next to walk out on them and join Juve, right, in 2004. They offered him a job. They said, what better way 
to show our desire mm-hmm. to be clean again, to 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 cut with the past, than to go and we'll hide. get in the stable master who told us about all those horse thieves. <laughs> exactly, another stable master. So that was a thinking, and then what happened afterwards. And this is why Andranielli took it, I think, so personally. I was just, there was bad blood at the time. I think relations might be better now. But they don't make that decision. They bring in Jean, Jean-Claude Blanc and all these other sort of Cobolli Gili, these other sort of patrician figures. And yeah, they like you. Claudio Ranieri, perfectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And they like they you Deschamps, again. first of all, no? Deschamps, to bring them back to Syria. But they're not good. And they're not good for a long time. And they signed Felipe Melo for a certain amount of Diego. money. And the Ciro Ferrara and Diego and blah, blah, blah. And then Andrea Agnelli comes back and he hires Conte. And he sues over Calciopoli. And he kind of, you know, restokes that Juve pride. saying he's like basically sued. How, I'm not sure how many legal actions he's brought so far. Three, four they maybe keep against him. the Federation. He's got, he's got another one reclaiming there. the two titles that, that Juve had and stripped. Th- those those titles... Sul campo, mm. as they say, one on the pitch. You will see 36 emblazoned yeah. on, on the Juventus Stadium. Um, and just as Gab said, Agnelli, I think, very popularly when, when he became president, basically said the last regime rolled over far too easily. Um, and, yeah, this is who we are. And we're going to fight this. And, yeah, I think that's played very well with with Juventus, popular, yeah. Juventus interestingly fans. he was paying a visit to the Continenta yeah before Christmas before which Christmas. I, I, again Luciano Moggi yeah um, you know again sort of hugging and, and sharing a glass with Agnelli with um, with Allegri, well, essentially well. Allegri the, the directors you know it's still seen at Juventus games which is just a bad look for the, mm. for, for the club but it's something that they don't seem to care about the impact anyway of the news the findings in 2006 and they were rapid the uh, the case brought in sporting terms against Moji Giraldo and Bettega was extremely rapid it sort of poisonous to this day because of the decision that was made in the sporting tribunal which was obviously to revoke the two titles but uh, to leave one unattributed and uh, assign the other one to inter, to and, inter. Uh, and that will always be a very sour point it's why i think the derby d'italia now is and it always has been, but it is certainly since mm. 2006 the most poisonous rivalry that there is in Italy. 2006, then Moji gets banned for life from football. The criminal cases rumble on. Uh, he's given five years, four months, I think was the final sentence given, but he's never served, I don't think, any of that. He doesn't need, he can't, if you're over the age of 70 and you're committed of, of when you're not considered a physical danger to others right. and it's a nonviolent crime, then. You really never serve your sentence. It's okay, also why criminal our, conspiracy. Our former prime minister isn't behind bars. You might be shocked that he's above the age of seventy, right. but yes, that is the case because he looks so youthful. But yes, that is the case with Mr. Berlusconi as well. What he has done in the meantime is tried politics with Craxi's daughter. I think yeah. he stood for uh, election and become a consultant for the Probably biggest Albania. team in Albania, uh, the Partizan we Tirana. Should, we should also point out that he he still writes regularly. Is it still for um, Libero? Libero. I, don't know. I, I think he's he's on he's on the radio all the time. Right. He's, he's he's written he's a book TV. as well, a kick in the heart. No? He's he's written several books, often talking about his greatest transfer deals. Of you know how he, for example, got Nedved. Nedved didn't want to leave Lazio, and he said, "Oh, why don't you just pop up to to Torino?" Flew him out there, and when the plane doors opened, there was all the press there taking photos. So essentially, Nedved was like. <laughs> They're, they're, they're here to basically yes. welcome me as the new signing. How can I go back on this now? 
Modji's version of events then was we we hinted at this before that, that he was the victim of of, of, of he was out modjied if you like. Uh, who were the real villains? I've, I've heard talk of the Roman sides who won titles yeah. that he himself was very unhappy with. Uh, Lazio's against Juve. The story goes that Berlusconi, when Milan started, you know, they were losing money. They sort of had like um, a fallow period between sort of '98 and 2003 when they won the title again with uh, with uh, Ancelotti. That Berlusconi asked to meet with Moggi. And, you know, was didn't quite offer him the job, but was ready to do that. And that would have meant axing your buddy Adriano Galliani, who's his like, sort of longtime number two transfer guru, very right. influential. Galliani found out about the meeting and said, all right, I got to stop this guy. It sounds kind of bogus to me, like a lot of what Moji says, because first of all, for all the power these people, these other, you know, networks and stuff, these other people supposedly wield, the reality is, you know, you're Juventus. You've got, you know, the Italian royal family behind you and Italy's private employer, and you've got more fans than anybody else. And equally, I don't see why he would have left Juventus to go to Milan. I don't see any logic behind that. The interesting thing about Galliani is that um, when we talk about conflicts of interest, he was both the acting president of, of, of Milan, but also the president of the league for for four years, which is kind of an interesting... When you talk about people with a well, network of yeah. power, Galliani wasn't doing too badly for himself. Money was also found guilty and banned, which nobody seems to remember. He was banned for six months, I think it was, yeah. in that trial. But, you know, what does banned mean? Well, I mean, come yeah. on, Cap. I mean, like Claudio Lotito, um, yeah. the Delhi Valley brothies, all were well, the fixed Delhi up Valley in brothers, scandal. So there was a guy called Mazzini, you know, at the Federation. Who, who the... Who, who the yeah, Italian. who the prosecution... Uh, alleged was essentially Moji's man on the inside of in the, the FA, of the and, and the Delhi Valley brothers' kind of defence was: we spoke to this guy about the fact we were getting hammered, we were heading down towards relegation, and we rang up the federation to say, "Look, this is weird. What's going on?" And he said, "This is the game. If you want to play it, you'll stay up." Some of the game wasn't Some of the worst wiretaps are of him speaking to these guys after games, be it Lotito, be it Delhi Valley, and just laughing hysterically laughing at all f- football fans out there who thought what they were seeing was was credible. What a gallery of, of, of rogues and villains. All right, well, that was Luciano Moggi and the shadowy world of the cupola. And thank goodness Italian football is not like that now. What is it like? We'll talk about that after this. My name's Joe, and I secretly recorded my boyfriend. I don't know any names of women that are good-looking. I'm not joking. He really doesn't know about this. Look, Tom Cruise is a good-looking bloke. Any closer to home? Closer to home. Join me and my two friends every week as we share far too much about our personal lives. One of the first things him saying to me is that I'm not like other girls that he's been with. That's great! They were naturally pretty, whereas... You do look better with makeup on. Oh, my days. Search I Secretly Recorded My Boyfriend wherever you get your podcasts and tell everyone, just don't tell him. You? Yeah, me. No, you're on about pretty as in pretty. The stories from this weekend. Juve's wobbles continue. Uh, Qualiata's streak ends... There's a massive pile-up for the top four. And is time up for Luciano Spalletti. Where do you want to begin? Juve. All right, then. So they were 2-0 up against Parma, and then they're 3-1 up against Parma, and they end up 3-3. And is it all because the BBC were missing, James? 
Look, I mean, Juventus haven't played very well now for sort of a couple of months. Uh, I think there's a few mitigating factors in that, in that uh, if you look at the kind of fixture run into Christmas, they played all the sort of top eight. I don't think you could expect champagne football from them in all of those games. Um, and they've had injuries um, throughout that period. But I, I, what I would say is they once affected almost everyone in the midfield and then all the midfield guys got fit and now they're affecting everyone in the defence right. and I think that's a that's a real critical part I think they've had a bad transfer window um, I, I, I think Benatia go in Benatia essentially saying I want to go I want to play more and it's like actually no you want to make 10 million euro a year in Qatar well they're racing now to get Bonucci and Chiellini back in time for certainly the Atletico Madrid tie in the Champions League coming up next week they still have a hefty margin at the top of Serie A but it is down to single digits now with Napoli uh, pulling to nine points behind with their 3-0 win over Sampdoria did you enjoy this performance Cap? I did probably mentioned Marek Hamsik going mm. to uh, China as yep. well. I think Napoli can absorb that departure very well yeah. because there's one area where they really are stacked now that Allen is staying is midfield. Allen, Zielinski, Fabian, uh, Fabian Ruiz, Diawara, who I not everybody likes, but I really like. Um, so I think you know this is something you can absorb. And also, as great as Hamsik was, and he was there forever, and he, he'll, he leaves his Napoli's most appearances and greatest ever goal scorer, not bad for a midfielder, but he really hadn't been that good for the last 18 months. Right. And so... But Napoli, Napoli were there. good in this game against a very informed Sampdoria. Serena win two of those goals coming within a minute and 10 seconds of each other in the first half. Milik and then Insigne. Quagliarella, his scoring run ends, but he did get a call-up for a special get-together with the national team uh, this week uh, with uh, with Roberto Mancini. That's eight years after his last cap. And he joked, when they called me, I thought it was to be asked to be on Mancini's staff. I'm that old. Now, Roma-Milan was the big game on Sunday night, part of that massive battle going on for fourth place, which might be opening up a little bit to third place and fourth place. We'll talk about Inter in a second. After the seven goals they'd shipped in Florence, what did you make of Roma's performance in this? I thought they played well on the whole. I mean, were it not for Gigi Donnarumma continuing his great form, a brilliant double save on Schick and Dzeko, I think they would have been clear and away in, in that game. Um, good for Milan that you saw combining for their goal. Um, both their new signings, uh, Paquita and Piontek. Mm. So um, that's three in two games. So his first two games, he scored a brace, and now this. Yeah, Piontek. extraordinary. And, and uh, Gattuso was saying afterwards that Piontek can just, you know, do the attacking part of the uh, the team's play <laughs> completely on his own, uh, which which is fine. Um, but uh, yeah, and again, Zaniolo, um, uh, Zaniolo becoming the uh, the youngest player to score three goals by his age um, at Roma since a certain Francesco Totti. So. Um, right. I think for Roma to give that performance, okay, they they drop points again, if you like, in what was a, an, an awful atmosphere um, where the the ultras essentially booed everyone apart from Daniele De Rossi and Zaniolo before the game. Uh, they walked out after 15 minutes, mm. um, a time when they really could do with their, their advanced support. You know, I thought on the whole, it's pretty encouraging from Roma. Whenever Roma feel like they're just falling apart after that 7-1, they, <laughs> they bounce back and play really well. Well, it means now that you've got... Inter in third place, 11 points behind second place Napoli, but only now four points ahead of Milan. And Milan have three teams just one point behind them, Atalanta, Roma and Lazio, all level. So essentially, if you include Inter in that, you've got five teams in five points battling for two Champions League spots. And I think it's fair to include Inter into that because after getting knocked out of the Coppa Italia, after being beaten by Torino in their previous game, they then, this weekend, took on one of the worst performing sides in Italy, Bologna, who 
just fired their manager, Pipo Inzaghi, and brought in Sinisa Mihalovic. So Inter take on struggling Bologna at San Siro. And what happened? They lost, James. And I think one of the most extraordinary things about this uh, and why they were whistled off the pitch at the end was because um, Bologna had not won in four months, have looked completely bereft of confidence on the Pippo Inzaghi, can't score any goals. And Inter not only find themselves behind, but with 15 minutes to go, are playing Andrea Nokia. Remember him up front. Oh, he almost scored it. <laughs> but, I mean, that was, that was desperate. Gab, what did you make of Inter's performance? And is it significant that Antonio Conte was papped wandering the streets well, of Milan? Do you know what? He, he, his people briefed after that. He was buying a sofa for his wife. Yeah, you know what? Just go to sleep on it. This is just... <laughs> I, I hate talking about money, but there's a reason I do it, because it matters. Where do you allocate your resources? Inter's three highest-played players, right? One of them, Mauro Icardi. We now discover he makes less than we thought he did, and the guy still doesn't have his new contract, and you're dealing with a madwoman as his agent. That is a screw-up. He should not be in this situation. Mm. Uh, Raja Nangolan. Okay, Spalletti loves him. Fine. Brings him in. Dude's always injured. What does he do? Oh, look, he goes and he parties. And then he get, you get a one-game suspension, and he's back, and he's injured, and he plays badly. He took the worst penalty in the history of mankind uh, in the Coppa well. Italia. <laughs> uh, what the hell? You Who's don't know how to one? handle him? Who's the other one? Probably the other one is this freaking Ivan Perisic, who I've already ranted about before, right. at the risk of repeating myself. And the only the only tiny saving grace, but right. we'll find out yeah. if, it, if the problem is Inter or it's the people there, is there's a grown-up now at the club in the form of Beppe Marotta, and we'll see what he can do. But I'll tell you what, I mean, the guy looks like he's, he's aged 10 years <laughs> in the one month he's been there. Because this club wears you down like no other in the history of mankind. Uh, right, who are into playing this weekend? They're, ooh, they're away at Palmer, Palmer on Saturday evening. Yeah. That's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Gervinho running at them. Gervinho, who, uh, what, is one goal away from matching his uh, best ever season? Really? Uh, in the league, in Serie A at least. Um, yeah, Daverso doing a pretty good job. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, that's one of the many delights coming up this weekend. Just before that match on Saturday evening, Fiorentina taking on Napoli, which could be tasty. You've also got Sassuolo Juventus on Sunday, and so much more. Your friends Chievo taking on Roma. That might be... <laughs> Fun. That's on and Friday night, Gab. We, yeah. we kind of got to go now, but do tell us. Just the final thing, because mm -hmm. I wrote a column about this on Monday in the uh -huh. Times. Atalanta have scored more goals per match this season in the league than uh, every single team in Europe's big five competitions, except for Borussia Dortmund, Barcelona, and Paris Saint-Germain, all of whom are leading their league. So they've scored more goals per game than Man City? And Man, City, and Man City, who should be leading the league. Right. Um, and Liverpool, too. It right. might be by the time you hear this. No, so Atalanta's, Atalanta's uh, uh, wage bill, yeah. 27 million euros. They have the 14th highest wage bill in Serie A. I mean, repeat that. The 14th out of 20 teams' highest wage bill in Serie A. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. What's also quite extraordinary is the mess that's coming at Palermo after such a promising start. But that's something we'll have to discuss another time because this has been Golazzo with. We'll it next week when Dean Holdsworth and Plakti come on. All right, we'll do it then. <laughs> nice one. Thanks, Gabriele Marcotti. Many thanks to you, James Horncastle, and producer Charlie. And you, listener, for now, from all of us here. It's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>